first came on my parents started trying to watch it and my mother just said you know you, there's a lot of swearing in that show my friends don't like it <laughs> hi there i'm dave and i'm kobe and you're listening to the wire stripped the show where we rewatch every episode of hbo's the wire and we'll also be hearing from the cast crew some fans and you guys this time we're watching season one episode four old cases and now on to our chat which we recorded on the streets of London. He got the fire and the fury at his command. When you don't have to worry, when you hold on to Jesus' hand, we'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. You gotta keep the devil. So we're back, back out on the streets of Baltimore, a.k.a. <laughs> the South Bank of London. <laughs> it's, it's twinned with the South Bank. Tw- <laughs> so it's so like it. It's, uh, and it's a beautiful day. We're looking at the towers. Um, the high rises. The high rises. We're looking at high rises. And it's inspiring us to chat about The Wire again. It's not unlike... Uh, it's very similar. It's very similar to episode two where Prez and her Kinkaba... Uh, were complete numbnuts and caused a mini riot. Uh, I still haven't gotten <laughs> over that. I think there's so many. We'll, we'll get into this in a bit. But with Herc and Carve in particular, there's yeah. so many sort of uh, slap your palm to your to your forehead moments with them, isn't there? This is episode. We're going to talk about episode four, and this is for me is a seminal episode in understanding and the why and where a lot of pieces come together in this episode. There's like four, a few storylines. Yeah, first storyline is. Lester Freeman becomes he steps up to the plate and this is where even more so yeah even more so and this is where such a dude other guys understand so McNulty in previous episodes Kim McGregg starts to see the twinkle of of, in his eyes and this episode get McNulty who sees understands what's going on here McNulty's like who's this guy who's this guy and (laughs) so much so they text him for a drink yes I love this scene yeah um, it's kind. Of, this is kind of the Freeman backstory, almost, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. McNulty does a little bit of digging. Bunk sort of says, uh, you know, oh, he's proper police. <laughs> and then Freeman gives him. Uh, he's kind of, and it's kind of. The scene is so good because it's almost like a cautionary tale for McNulty, or it's almost like a glimpse at his future. Uh, there's one, and there's, there's one great line that finishes it off, which is uh, Freeman says to him, you know, when they ask you. Where, where you want to go, say nothing. And, and they will yeah. ask you. <laughs> they will ask you. But it's already been too late because they asked him. At the, and they asked McNulty in they episode did. one. Yes. And, he's, and he already said... He hates the, the water. Yeah, and, <laughs> oh, McNulty, where are you going to end up at the end of the season? <laughs> I wonder where. Well, we know. And We won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. <laughs> but uh, McNulty here, yeah, Freeman here is... He's just taken on his own behest to check out the pager number that he found on the on the in the stash and he checks out and finds out it's um it belongs to d and he brings it back to the guys and said yeah this is d's pager number i checked it out i took a picture of him and everyone just turns around and goes who the fuck is this guy (laughs) this is this is amazing uh and then he have then mcnulty has a chat with bunk and says do you know anything about freeman he says yeah he's one of he's one of the best police ever but he just got shafted basically 
it's the he's the equivalent of like a guy at an, at the office who um, you say something like, oh, if only we could do this, and he's like, yeah, I did that last week. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's already done it. He's I've already I've uh, <laughs> done it three times. Oh, and I've also uh, you know reorganized the entire filing system, and the place is running thirty percent more smoothly. And then sat down and started sanding my my baby furniture again <laughs> yeah it's almost too cool there's a bit of a there's, there's a sort of a humble braggy sort of Brilliant. thing about him it's but he's just the best <laughs> I love Freeman and the second storyline I want to chat about is the Deirdre Crescent case this is where we first hear about the Deirdre Crescent case which kind of underpins a lot of the rest of the season um, this is the this is the murder of one of Avon Barksdale's mistresses I guess yeah yeah, and... Hussies, as Hussies. we'd say in Ireland. <laughs> That's and what my mother would describe. <laughs> a shameless hussy. I don't know if that was an attempt at, at an Irish accent. I hope it wasn't. Uh, was that it? I oh, know. Oh, sorry. That was excellent. I was transported <laughs> was back to the home country. Oh, were you? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and when I first watched the, um, the Wire, I didn't really understand how important this, this case really is to a lot of the story. Yeah. And I think, take note, guys, take note to the listeners, because this comes back time and time again. I'll be honest. The first time I saw this uh, this show, I didn't have a clue what was going on or no. who she was or how it tied into anything. And I found a lot of this quite confusing. And I'm getting, as I'm watching it back now, this this second time, I'm getting flashbacks to my own confusion. Yeah. Um, but it's all clicking into place a lot easier this time. I don't know. Maybe it's because I already know where it's going <laughs> and I already know the characters. But certainly easier on a second rewatch. I'm finding. So yeah, Deirdre Crescent scene is and. Um, the Deirdre Crescent story is when Jay Landsman comes back to comes back to Milton and says, there's a tenuous link with this guy called D. Isn't he on your detail? Why don't you guys go and check it out? And Milton Bunker like, why the fuck should we check this out? We can't really be bothered to. But they check out anyway. They go to where she was murdered and this whole scene of them investigating what happened is pure awesomeness from start to finish. Yeah, so they only say... The word fuck. Oh, fuck. Or variations of the word fuck. Something like 40 times. Motherfucker. Yeah, I need to count it. We need to get an official count, word count of the, of the fuck. I tried to find it. Um, the, the the count I found uh, said that uh, it was something like the Bunk and McNulty say the word fuck approximately 38 times. Why Why approximately? I know. <laughs> this is what bothered me. And what's up? There's nothing approximate about the number 38. That's very specific. So, I'd, I mean, I could have just gone and counted it, but I'd rather just... I'd, it took me longer to try and Google the answer than it would have just... To, just count just it counted. with a little clicker. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. For me, the two scenes that defined my entire experience of The Wire was, one, the fuck scene in season one. Here's Wendell Pierce, who plays Bunk, telling us about when he first found out about the fuck scene. David came up to us as we were filming and he said, listen, we're, they're going to be on us about cursing. So um, I really want to do something so we can just get that out of the way. Uh, they're going to say the language is too much on the show and also we're going to get this out of the way. You're going to come to the scene, you're going to look at it, you're going to go, oh, this is done wrong. Uh, you can't believe it. You're, you're working the scene. You realize, wait a minute, it was supposed to be a shooting inside, but because there's glass on the windowsill, you realize the bullet came from outside. Then you say, well, if the bullet came from outside, we may still have the bullet in here. Look at the trajectory. Here it is. If up, we find a the bullet, then you're going to go and say, well, if we have the bullet here, we might find the casing outside. And you go outside and you're going to go, yes, I found the casing. 
And that's the scene. And we get to see McNulty and Bunk Moreland after uh, their introduction be the very good detectives that they are. You're going to do that whole scene, gentlemen, but you're just going to use the word fuck. <laughs> and he explained that to us one night while we were filming something else. And he said, the pages will come to you next week. And he actually wrote out the entire scene and wrote the fucks in there. We did, we did it as scripted, and then he said, all right. Then they said, now you guys just do you. You know, put it wherever you want to put it and all. And it's a combination of those two. Whenever we said fuck or our variation of the word, uh, wherever it was, you know. And uh, it is uh, uh, one of the scenes that I'm proudest of. Motherfucker. Bunk is McNulty's smarter, better half. This is Andrew Johnston, an academic and podcaster from maryland he's he's the if mcnulty just listened to bunk his life would be better if the two of them would just get together but then bunk has bunk of course has he and mcnulty have the best scene in all of season one which is in episode four the all fucks scene as i call it (laughs) it's just the two of them going minute by minute through an entire ballistics like case going fuck motherfucker <laughs> just non-stop it's not even a short scene it's like four and a half maybe five minutes long or something absolutely brilliant and it could only be bunk fucking a mm-hmm. Bobby, what are your thoughts on the scene when you a first saw it and now rewatched it first saw it thought very clever loved yeah. it uh on the rewatch i i sort of it it felt a little forced to me oh, or really? a little Labored. I don't know. Uh, was it just that maybe I had more of a critical eye on it? I mean, it's very, it, it's great. It's very clever, uh, and I love that they they do communicate quite a lot of information between yeah. each other, um, just by pointing at things. But it felt I I kind of felt like you could almost sense that the the showrunner uh, or the director had an idea, and then it was like they, they wanted to make it happen. It didn't quite feel natural or organic to the characters anymore. And I'm being really nitpicky here. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, very, it's very well done. That scene is just so amazing because I, you've never seen anything like that on television. I don't think you ever will see anything like that on television again. This is Jonathan Abrams. He's the author of All the Pieces Matter, the true story of The Wire. They just use that one word, but you can you can follow along and you can see what they're doing and what's going through their mind through them just using the word fuck. I mean, it's amazing. I think this this is one of the scenes that people typically highlight out as if you're into The Wire, if you're um, not into it by this point, then you might as well dive out. Yeah, check out. Yeah, check out. Stop listening to us now as Exactly, well. yeah. You, you Sorry, can, if you don't like you this. You can unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> unsubscribe. If you don't like The Wire or us by this point, then fair <laughs> enough. You've given it a good crack and we appreciate your efforts. But before you go, uh, head to iTunes <laughs> and give us a quick review yeah. <laughs> and rating of what we've listened to so far. Thanks. Uh, but yeah, I love this scene, and I love the way it's juxtaposed with uh, D'Angelo t- trying to kind of big himself up in the scenes before with talking to the kids in the low rises. Yes, so it's very clever storytelling, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Because we we hear the story of this murder from D'Angelo's point of view, yeah, and then we see it from the cops' point of view, and and it's very subtly done with the McNulty tapping the window yeah. at the end, and that just ties it all together. It's, it's, it's nice. In the streets, the hit goes out on Omar. So they find, yeah, the guys are playing basketball. When I say the guys, I mean Avon Bartsdale, Wee Bay, uh, Stringer Bell are playing basketball. Stinkham's there. And 
just the lads. Just the lads playing basketball, and says, and this is where the hit goes out on Omar and his and his clue, and his and his stick-up crew because they've taken all of the stash away from them. All the re-ups gone. Yeah, they've got no drugs pissed. to play. Yeah, Barksdale is properly pissed off, and he starts off by saying, "Yeah, you know when guys go hunting and." They display the, the deer on top of the hood of the car. That's what I want. And that sets up what is a grisly kind of scene in a few episodes' time. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the amount of money that they offered? I thought it was quite low. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. But people seems, but I think it's one of those scenes where the guys at the top of the chain have got plenty of money to spend. Yeah. But the guys lower down, they don't have much at all. So whatever they're offering is really substantial to them yeah, I guess 4 or 5k to somebody who's you know what are they paying for we need a whole section on the, the economics of the, 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 the pits yeah, yeah we don't understand we don't understand <laughs> how much is getting paid is that paid. good is that the standard sort of hit price was it too high was it too low I would, how much would you have thought about I would have thought at least 10k yeah same Yeah, yeah. 10K, 10k feels like a, <laughs> a nice worth someone's life a nice <laughs> <laughs> I hope I, if I'm ever uh, if there's a hit ever put out on me I hope I could get in at least 10k I wouldn't make a move on you for less than 10k. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Kobe. <laughs> You're a good pal. <laughs> and that's it for the streets. That's it for the kind of storylines. Uh, well, I guess, and uh, crucially, we find out that Brandon and Omar are lovers. Yes. Um, and you sort of see that from a very tender point of view when you see the two of them together. Yeah. And then you see uh, you see it the, the way that Barksdale and, and Stringer Bell discuss it is a lot more sort of crude and uh, sort of vicious, I thought. Basically, I feel like Omar's character is this really interesting study in masculinity, and it's this huge theme in The Wire. This is Gabriella Jones. She's a podcast producer at The Guardian and a huge fan of The Wire. I think it's really important that Omar exists in The Wire as a gay man, and, and, that, and including I include that in like how he, I find him to be a really interesting study of what it's what it means to be a man obviously i'm a woman so i can only talk from like my perceptions and like a really snooty like film studies type (laughs) way of looking at it but there's this idea that like in the wire at least like you know being a man and having a bunch of strippers and and you know but actually omar can is like equally a badass he's like arguably the scariest guy in the whole program but he's absolutely nothing like that. He's actually really caring. And the relationship that he has with his boyfriend in season one is like, he actually is not afraid to show love. It's set at a time, certainly, where there's less tolerance for homophobia. And it's set in, the, in two kind of, in the police and on the streets. Um, if you're gay, then that's definitely a mark against you, isn't it? Yeah. And it was, it was, it's a very defining characteristic for Omar. Yeah. Because, particularly because he wears it as a badge of honour yeah. in a place where it wouldn't e- be easily tolerated. Well, yeah, he's no, he has no reason or desire to hide uh, being gay and whatsoever. And that makes him an ever more endearing character as well. Yeah, and it shows just how ballsy and brave he is yeah. as well. Like, he doesn't give a shit. And he's just a dude. Like, Omar, <laughs> Omar, is, Omar is Omar. I think of Omar as a good... As one of the good guys, but he's not. He's like he's going around with a shotgun. He's like helping to, like helping to feed people's addictions too. Like just because he's not selling it to them, like you know, why not just throw it in a bin or flush it down the loo? No, he goes and gives it out. Like he only cares about himself. He's only trying to protect himself by giving out the drugs. So like he's, like, he's morally a bit corrupt too. But for some reason, I feel like he's the good guy just because he's I don't know just because he's kind of eccentric and weird. 
<laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just like again, well written. I don't know. What were your what were your kind of favourite scenes going through the episode? I loved uh, I loved the the Bodhi escaping from Juvie <laughs> scene. So good. It's such a pathetic place to hold him, wasn't it? That he can escape <laughs> yeah. by pretending to push push a mop bucket out. <laughs> I think that just shows how clever he is. Yeah, because <laughs> it's the simplest uh, thing. Like he didn't he didn't plan a grand escape. No, you know he just he just picked up a mop, <laughs> and it's the first thing he saw, and he just wandered right out of there very casually um, yeah. he's just smart and he realised he was in a bad situation he realised there was a rival crew there saw it was maybe going south and he walked straight out I think Bodie fast becoming one of my favourite characters uh, particularly over the next few episodes Bodie's a great character very hot headed hot headed guy um, but very smart guy as well there's very few stupid people in The Wire no, I think, uh, well, Prez is probably the most stupid, but even he starts to redeem himself. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. I get, well, Poke and Mahone are... Poke and Mahone. I mean, let's talk about uh, Poke and Mahone as well. Yes. So, a oh, great little scene with them in the hospital. In hospital. I love that. And Mahone, uh, you know, he's checking out And happy early. about it. Very happy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're just the laziest, too. They just want, they just want out, don't they're they? They're just using it as an excuse to get hammered perhaps away from their spouses let's <laughs> yeah. get up in the morning we'll go to the, we'll go to the bar and turn up to the detail absolutely slashed check in to work first yeah you know you gotta sign your timesheet. <laughs> head to the bar but um, Mahone is like delighted because yeah. he's able to get early retirement and go work in a video store of which <laughs> I wonder how that works out for him so 2002 videos yeah. were already on the way out <laughs> yeah I don't think Mahone is quite aware of that do you, I have a question for you watch out do you think that D'Angelo did murder Deirdre Crescent? Or is he just showboating in front of Bodie and Wallace? He's and com- if you know the actual answer to this, then don't <laughs> answer it, because I don't remember. I think he's completely showboating, and but he's involved. Yeah, he knows he knows too much of the detail yeah. to not be involved. But I, it, I, for everything we know about uh, D'Angelo, and the more we get to know him, it seems cold-blooded murder of an unarmed woman feels out of character for him, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's such a likeable guy, but... So the, the initial murder that he did do um, seemed like a very reactionary kind of thing. It, yeah. And out of character, but it seemed to him the necessary thing that he needs... The thing he needs to do at the time. But actually being part of a hit crew where he is the one that pulls the final trigger, I don't think that's in him. And I don't... And I think... The upper, I think Avon Barksdale and and Weebay and and Stringer would know that he's not the guy to pull the trigger. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They know who best to put in what situation. Yeah. Yeah. And also in that scene where he's describing the hit, he doesn't explicitly say, "Yeah, I pulled the trigger." It's down to Wallace to say, "Yeah, of course he killed her." Yeah, and, that's uh, true. But I think that's his kind of. I like the way he's the kind of grandpa sometimes to those kids and he, he says I'm going to tell you a story this is how it is this is how we work the situation and that's a that's a kind of perfect example of it I think yeah it's very interesting when you see him as the mentor to, to, to the boys in yeah. the pits and then you see him with Stringer and Bell uh, Stringer Bell and Barksdale and he's just this totally different character which Absolutely. is it's, it's, it's perfect writing because that's how we all have different faces for different people don't we um, another bit I liked, um, we've mentioned them already, was Hark- Harkin Carve <laughs> on the way to pick up Bodie from, from Juvie. We already know that he's walked out of there. And this, I love how confident the two of them are. 
that they can flip him. I just <laughs> I love Carver sort of describing, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to play it. Yeah. I'm going to sit him down. I'm going to say, like, oh, you know, you put, a, you put a guy in hospital. The dude's nearly dead, all this kind of stuff. And Her- Herc's face is my favorite because he's just, like, eating this up. Like, yeah, you reckon? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Like, they think they've got it so sewn up. They're so confident. It's like, we're going to be the heroes. <laughs> we're going to blow this case wide open. <laughs> yeah, they thought that was it. <laughs> I almost, I just love the naivety of the two of them yeah. and how simple. And it makes them quite endearing in a way, even though they br- brutally beat <laughs> Bodhi several times over. And, uh, yeah, meanwhile, Bodhi has walked out. In fact, they go past him in the car, don't they? Yeah, he's hitchhiking <laughs> right behind. That's so good. And there's that scene, in fact, with Herc and Carver at, at this that prologue at the start where um, Herc's trying to pull the push the desk. I can't. I don't know which way it's working. He's trying to work. He's trying to push the desk out of the office. He's trying to get it in. He says, "Well, I'll never get it in." At this yeah. Stage. So Herc's trying to get. Herc, yeah. So the prologue is Herc's trying to push the desk in. Carver comes along and says, "I'll help you out." And they're pushing against each other and then more and more cops come in so funny <laughs> and they're pushing against each other meanwhile Freeman's looking at them while sanding down his do- his, <laughs> his mini furniture <laughs> and he's just looking at them being idiots <laughs> playing off against each other with a wry smile on his face again this is where you see Freeman being a dude as well he's just he's just, he's just sitting back and laughing at these he's guys he's too good for it he's too good for it but you it's know, a great metaphor isn't it absolutely and this is this is the thing that that scene was like a metaphor for how the police kind of work against each other and yeah time and time again you see how like Rawls is up against McNulty even though they're trying to Rawls is trying to clear the cases clear get the numbers up but McNulty is trying to clear the case which will be a bigger case and this is kind of a, a metaphor like you say for how the police works together yeah everyone's colliding nobody's working together they're, yeah. they're directly opposed forces and it's really cool that also um Daniels was involved in this as well. He wasn't even Daniels wasn't smart enough to realise what was going on. <laughs> yeah, well, Daniels is massively part of the problem in general, isn't he? I yeah. mean, he's part of the, the chain of command. He's working. He's often working against his own team to better his own, to better himself. I loved the. Uh, I loved the scene. We get a little bit more of Jay Landsman here, mm. um, and I loved him going into Rawls and uh, well first of all describing in sordid detail him having a wank which was pretty, <laughs> quite, pretty quite disgusting yeah yeah um, <laughs> but I like it's all just set up for him to basically he's got McNulty's back and I, qu- I quite like yeah. that he says you know McNulty's an asshole he thinks he's the smartest man in the room but he's good police. Good police. And he gets the, and you know, he cleared, a, what does he say? He cleared a decomp floater who was a John Doe for three weeks. Yeah. I, I love that you you get a little bit more of a, of a hint of what, just how good a cop Minotti Minotti is. is. Yeah. What's great about Landsman is he is such the obvious middle ground. I mean, because he is between Rawls and McNulty. You never know if Jay's going to do the right thing. Because he's an asshole. Partially because he's a complete asshole. He, he totally is. But it, it always seems like, is he career-minded? Because he'll do whatever Rawls told, tells him to do. But then he'll also kind of let, at least Bunkin, maybe not McNulty. I think he kind of, he might have like a, a real grudge against McNulty because he is such a pain in the ass. But he always seems to be telling Bunk what's happening. That Rawls wants this and, you know, maybe you should do something with this information or whatever he's in this crazy middle ground 
You just never know what he's going to do. And that kind of makes him a lot more interesting of a character. He's, you, he's a cop, but he's also in command. And he sort of has the most... He has sort of the balance of those two things that we would hope all the commanders have. But no. Only Landsman has him. He's, him and Daniels are the only command officers who actually demonstrate some actual detective capability and who actually realize that, you know, yeah, we got to get the numbers down, but we should also probably do some good police work. Police! Open the damn door! Open the damn door! Open the door! What? Open the motherfucking door! So there's that scene when Herc and Carver realize clearly that Bodhi has escaped from, from Juvie and they're on the hunt to try, and, to try and find him. And the first place, well, one of the places they go is Preston Bodhi Broadus' uh, grandmother's house. Oh, I love this scene. So good. <laughs> uh, it's just so tragic. This is the, it just really in one little scene shows you, you see life for someone who lives in the projects mm. who isn't involved it's in not part of the game the drug scene the game yeah, yeah. And, and I think this, is, this feels like the first time we've actually seen just an ordinary person yeah and we, we do see more people going forward but apart from I guess the guy Gant who gets capped um, right at the start yeah um, she, she's probably the first civilian that we see and Bodhi's, Bodhi's um, grandmother and she sits what's funny about that scene is that first of all they break into the house stomping around like policemen do yeah. and then Herc apologizes for swearing. Uh, yeah. And then she sits down and has a chat about how her how her daughter's part of the game, how how Bodie's an ang- was an angry kid from 4 years old. And it's really cool to see that kind of strip back and, and yeah, like you say understanding what other people are feeling about it. I'm sorry for cursing at the door. I mean, um, I couldn't see that it was only you. Is it the drugs again? Would you like to sit down? Preston came to me when my daughter died. He was four years old. But even then, I knew he was angry. His mother lived out there, caught up in it. After a while, he couldn't make us see nothing else. So how you think you're gonna carry it? No, I'm sorry, man. And I'm sorry for the way we came through here. If Preston comes past, give him this and uh, tell him we need to talk, okay? Sorry. It's sad, I thought. It yeah. made me really sad just because, well, A, she she's not phased by it. She just sits down and starts knitting. It's clearly commonplace. Yeah. Um, there's, it's just sad that she says, you know, that line, yeah, he's he was angry as soon as I got him. His mother had died. It, it humanizes... Bodhi, it humanizes Herc yep. a little bit because Herc is, you know, confronted with the the, the face of just the ordinary person. Yep. And he realizes he's just stormed into someone's <laughs> house, fucking screaming motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> so I, I like that. Like, Herc's not a one note no. uh, idiot either. You know, he's, he's got he's got feelings and he apologizes. Um, and I just thought it was a really, really beautiful scene. It's probably the standout scene for me in this episode. More than the fuck scene. Yeah, it was. Yeah, okay. this hit home for me more this time. I guess maybe because I knew 
the, the I, I knew the fuck scene was coming. Sure. I think the fuck scene, I've seen it so many times over the years. It sounds like we're talking about a sex scene. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this was more of a... I, this was one of those scenes I didn't quite remember, but it was just a lovely little moment. Yeah, absolutely. So who's no hard answer? <laughs> no hard ran drugs in the homes in the early 90s. So a couple of years back, I don't know why, he finds himself in Randallstown trying to take off a jewelry store. He fucks it up. Half the county chases him back downtown. And I guess no hard figures he's not up for doing the time because he puts a 4-4 against his chest, pulls the trigger. 44? Gets a contact wound. Wakes up two hours later in the university ER. <laughs> with a new nickname. Right. So we, have, yeah, we get some good more time with Bubbles here and get to understand how his experiences are. First of all, he's hanging out with Kima and um, talking about people are no heart Anthony so she doesn't she there's a lot that she doesn't understand no heart Anthony yeah no heart Anthony they're talking about Omar and how he fits into the whole kind of puzzle of the game um, and and she understands a bit about Omar's history a bit with his brother no heart Anthony but then Bubbles gets passed on to McNulty yeah um, who is late for his son's football game I love these three together aren't they just so good <laughs> all the back and forth what? and McNulty, McNulty and, McNulty, and oh, Bubbles and yeah. their interplay like Bubbles is just like one of the team isn't he, he is. and I like that he's just ripping her for not knowing who Nohard Anthony is Absolutely, yeah. and McNulty's like yeah obviously I know who Nohard Anthony is <laughs> um, but yeah the, the soccer game is, is great as well it's such a great little moment it Just that tells you so much about McNulty and without ever hearing why his wife split up with him you just know it's because he just keeps bringing let's like bringing his job home yeah you know and we see this again at a later point but he d- he just brings bubbles to a soccer game <laughs> just and i felt i felt sorry for bubbles there because he tried to shake her hand but she yeah. not his wife gives her the cold shoulder sad but um you can tell that yeah that wasn't the first time that she Manolte had brought someone home and there's a, and there's that lovely line which is the quote from the episode yeah. when uh, McNulty's dropping dropping him back uh, back home and he says what is it there's a there's, there's a thin line between heaven and here yeah and I thought that was lovely yeah it just goes to show yeah there's a particularly in these days it just shows the how small and how large the gap is between the complete poverty and you know just middle class yeah I mean you know, what, what he describes as heaven is just something quite simple. quite ordinary for a lot of people yeah yeah hello this is Chris Johnston host of Easy Riders Raging Podcast the podcast about the films of the 1970s my favourite character from series one is McNulty you see The Wyatt is all about shades of grey characters who are neither good nor bad and I think McNulty captures that pretty well because when he gives a shit well, McNulty is damn fine police, but he's a terrible parent, he's a lousy co-worker and friend, and he drinks. Boy, does he drink. And some of the time you're sitting there watching the show, and you think to yourself, I could go drinking with Jimmy McNulty, but you know what? It never ends well. And Jimmy just walks away saying, what the fuck did I do? And yeah, season one is really his year. He's funny, he's arrogant, he's naive, but damn, is he one great character. And that was a voicemail that was left on our burner phone. 
Yeah, that's right. We have an untraceable burner phone. You can call us from anywhere in the world. Uh, leave us a voicemail or a WhatsApp, whatever suits you. The details are all on our Facebook and our Twitter page. Yep, please leave us your name, location and Twitter account and a short and sweet message. And in honour of this episode, which contains the fuck scene, we'd love to hear your be- the best version of the word fuck that you've got. So send us fuckadoodledandy motherfucker just, just, <laughs> an ex, just an elongated fuck just call us and say the word fuck loads into a phone we, I promise that's going to be great fun it's a great stress reliever at the very least and we're going to go listen to them all yeah uh, and it's big and it's clever <laughs> <laughs> and we'll play out the best messages in the next episode that's it from us for this week join us next week we're going to be watching season 1 episode 5 of The Wire it's called The Pager Remember pagers? I never had a pager. My dad, my dad's a doctor, so he had a pager. So I used to be fascinated by it. Um, Did you play around with it? Like, was he getting like some urgent medical like calls, and you were like, <laughs> you're yeah, like, it, <laughs> it wasn't that. The weirdest thing was that he'd leave the flat to pick them up, and I was like, Dad, there's a there's a phone in the corner. What are you doing? So I think <laughs> maybe he's a drug dealer. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it's all coming out now. It's all coming out in the wash. Please remember, guys, to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a fantastic review. We're looking forward to reading all of them. Yes, and thanks to everyone who's already left a review. Uh, we really, really do appreciate it. Um, or if you want to just talk to us, uh, we, we're people you can talk to. Uh, you can chat us or send us a message. We're on Facebook and Twitter or Instagram. It's at The Wire Stripped. Or we have an email address. We've been getting some great emails. Um, it's burner at thewirestripped.com. And thanks yep. to everybody who's, who's written in so far. Yeah, we've, got, we've had some amazing, amazing messages. And we're going to be featuring some of you guys who've been talking to us because there's some fantastic stories there. Also, thanks to our guests who've taken the time to speak to us about their, about their love of the show and their involvement in the show. And as always, a huge thanks to Tom, the third member of the crew, and the man who keeps this ship uh, sailing towards its destination I'm not very good with metaphors <laughs> but I don't know what our destination is the end of the wire perhaps Issy Lawrence also big her up for the logo and graphics uh, yes and last but not least as always thanks to Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast who recorded the version of Way Down in the Hole which you're hearing right now if Tom's doing his job properly <laughs> I'm sure he is and guys we have a bonus episode uh, all about that recording and way down in the hole so check it out it'll be on your feed burner I don't know a feed burner it'll be in iTunes Acast Stitcher all the places you can get podcasts you'll be able to find it right now go listen now with your ears it's a great episode (laughs) bye bye when you walk through the garden you gotta watch your back well I beg your pardon Walk the straight and narrow track When you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul Just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole He got the fire and the fury At his command